Football MX Network production. Josie's on a vacation far away. Come around and talk it over. So many things that I want to say. A new view from inside the truck. X racer to racer and eye to eye. A casual look into the personalities of the sport and an experienced perspective into the action from week to week. It's Jason Thomas's Industry Seating. Presented by Pirelli Tires, Fly Racing, Blends All Racing Motor Oil, Works Connection, Plum Creek Funding, 612 Suspension, Fast Foundry, and Pro Glow. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Industry Seating. It is Sunday, December 20th. Getting ready for Christmas. I'm actually recording this from Las Vegas. I fly back home later today. But this week, I don't really have a lot of industry scuttlebutt. That's such a terrible word to use, but we're going to use it anyway. And I just wanted to kind of tell a story. I had a couple questions recently about just wanting to hear more you know, stories about my racing career and, and places I've gone and things I've done and seen. So going to get into that a little bit today. But first, I want to thank the sponsors of this podcast for always supporting me and my ventures. Pirelli Tires, Blenzol Oils, Plum Creek Funding, Works Connection, Risk Racing, Premier Vapor Blasting of Georgia, Fast Foundry, 612 Suspension, Pro Glow Wash, Grant Stone Boots, and of course, Fly Racing. And I am going to be recording a few interviews with a couple of these sponsors to uh, let them tell you a little bit more about their companies in their own words. So look forward to that. Got my phone line installed finally, and I'm off the next couple of days. So hopefully can uh, can have that up and running for the new year. So exciting things in the works. I know I've been promising some of that stuff. It's just been slow going and trying to get guys over to install stuff when I have time and I'm not at work and blah, blah, blah. But into the podcast itself, this story is going to be from Germany, and this is going back to 2004, and this would have been right at the beginning of what I would I would kind of call my run in Europe, where I was just on a tear. The 04, 5, 6, 7, 08, I was hurt, and then 09 years, even 10 too, I was really, really good at these European Supercrosses. So the, what, six or seven year run there. And when I say good, I, I'm talking about winning multiple rounds of German Supercross, you know, podiums at races like Barcelona and Madrid and uh, all over Western Europe, really. Sheffield, England. Um, and there were, there were a ton of smaller races too. Going into Italy, uh, racing Bercy, which, you know, Bercy was always really, really difficult. You're dealing with guys like James Stewart and Chad Reed and guys like that. So, Podium wasn't always necessarily something I was able to accomplish at a race like Bercy or ever, um, but still, you know, top tens and stuff like that. And then I would go on, go back to more of my arena, where whether it was in Germany or the Netherlands or or all the places I mentioned before, and try to go get a win and try to go get on the podium and yeah, really support myself. And that's how that's how we made money. So this story in particular is, I want to say December, November, December. It would have been the end of November going into December of 2004. And it was in the middle of the German Supercross series. Now in this year in particular, unfortunately, they did not have 
a series points system, which sucked. There there was a lot of infighting back then between all the promoters in Germany, and, and it was shockingly always about money. I, I know that's hard to believe that, that people could disagree and, and things could get screwed up over money. But yes, we lost our championship. They would have races, right? It was like they wanted to work together, but they couldn't agree on terms. So it was like, okay, well, you guys run your races. We're going to run ours, but we're not going to work together at all, which was dumb because there were a lot of series sponsors and everybody that couldn't be involved and they couldn't, the only people that really lost out were the riders. We didn't get, you know, series ending championship bonuses and all the things that go along with that. We couldn't go negotiate with the teams to increase those bonuses too. So there, there were a lot of negatives on the rider side. Uh, and I have no idea the the promoters probably didn't care, but it was, uh, it was definitely disappointing. And, and for me, looking back, I lost out on chances to be German champion more times because certainly in 04, I had a very good shot at it. Uh, 06, I think it would have been a no-brainer. 07 would have been a no-brainer. So I could have had multiple German Supercross championships instead of just the two that were official. So this year was kind of my breakout, and I hadn't done a lot of winning in Germany really at all, and we'll get into that. Um, but I really, when I feel like, okay, when did you really sort Germany out and, and figure out what you needed to do and how you needed to prepare and what it took to win? I really look to this 2004 season. So a little background on how my preparation would go. And this is more off the bike throughout the summer. I would start reaching out to, or they would start reaching out to me, the promoters in Europe. And a lot of these guys, some communicated, some didn't, but they were on their own. For instance, a race like Barcelona, there was a gentleman named Jordi, and I would speak to him regularly, but you know he had a really great budget, and he could afford to spend a lot of money for his rider. So it was always a race that I wanted on my calendar because I knew there was a lot of money to be made there. Well, anytime a race has a big budget like that, you're going to get a lot of competition for who they, who they give their money to, right? It's not like I had the, the market cornered on knowing this race had a lot of budget. You're dealing with agents that are getting involved now, and they're going to try to fill up their roster at this race. You know, a guy like Jimmy Button was very good friends with uh, the promoters of that race. He raced that race many, many times, so he had a very good relationship. So he would often send whatever riders he could, right? So I, w- I was competing with those guys and how would I have to get aggressive and very early. And that's something I learned was if I could get in there early and I don't want to say low ball them, but coming with, with a reasonable offer, because you have to understand the riders that I was competing against for dollars were, I guess you could say just better than me, especially at that time in the 04 season, they were better than me but they would ask for a lot. They didn't necessarily want to go to Barcelona, but you could convince them to go with the right amount of money. So that was my angle was say, okay, I know what I'm up against. I know what these guys are asking for. And they would be asking for, you know, no less than 10 K up to, you know, 50,000. I would say it's probably about as, as high as a guy like buttons guys would go. But, you know, 10, 20, 30 was not out of the question all day. So I would come in and ask for, you know, five to eight to 10, depending on, and and that number grew as my success increased throughout those years I mentioned, but especially in that 04 season, I would come in pretty low, you know, three, four, 5,000 
on a weekend, but I would try to string weekends together. Now, a race like Barcelona was always on a Sunday night, and I, I don't know why that was. Clearly, it was some sort of cultural thing with that particular event. It was one of the only races of the year that would be on a Sunday night only. You know, you you would have find races that would race Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but for a race to only be on Sunday night was pretty strange. That offered that offered a uh, a unique opportunity for me though, because Germany uh, there was a race called uh, it was in the city of Chemnitz, and I'll get into that in a second. But it was part of the German series unofficially. We didn't have points that year, but it was leading into Thanksgiving. Actually, it was on Thanksgiving weekend, so Thanksgiving was Thursday. And then that race was that weekend. So I would have to fly out on Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Typically, a lot of the riders would get together and have dinner together in the hotel on Thursday. It's not like we could have a Thanksgiving dinner, but we would eat together and just a little bit of fraternization on Thursday since we were all missing Thanksgiving together. And then Chemnitz was Friday, Saturday. And then that Barcelona race was Sunday. So going back to the summer, when I see these dates start showing up as far as when, who's racing when, I start putting a plan together. And it's a pretty ambitious plan, to say the least. Uh, But my plan was to fly Wednesday, as I mentioned, get there Thursday, race Chemnitz, which is in eastern Germany on Friday, Saturday, and then somehow get to Barcelona, race Sunday, and then come back to America somehow the next week. However, I needed to do that. Now, I have this plan in the back of my mind, hoping that these promoters will go along with it. Because if you are expecting them to pay you start money and perform well there, and then you they hear that you have this crazy plan about racing on the same weekend across different con- you know, in different countries, a lot of times they're going to be like, no, you're going to be you know, half effort or not showing up on time or whatever. And we're not going to count on you as part of our show in that scenario. So I kind of had to play it off a little bit, but also make sure that my plan was rock solid. Now, speaking of Chemnitz, Chemnitz is a city in Eastern Germany. It's about, uh, two hours, hour and a half, maybe South West of Berlin. And back then, especially it was not, all that westernized yet, you know, you would see how it was progressing and and figure you're only 15 years from the wall coming down in 2004, right? The wall comes down in 89, you're 15 years later. So what you would see is a lot of uh, old and new. So you would, you would go and there would be a brand new McDonald's. And then next door to that, there would be a building that was shot out, windows blown out, graffiti everywhere because it was still, it still looked like old, Eastern Germany, you know, before the wall came down. So there was a lot of a mix of everything. So it was definitely interesting to see. It was, I would say my least favorite event for a few reasons of the German series. For one, the purse was less. I don't know why. I don't know if that had to do with being in Eastern Germany. I don't know if it just was less attendance, just maybe just the promoter was less generous. I don't really know, but it was certainly much less money. And to give you an example in real dollars, if I went and won Stuttgart, Munich, uh, Dortmund was the most, but Stuttgart, Munich were was a race I won multiple times, and it was always around ten to eleven thousand U.S. dollars, and uh, depending on the euro, you know, um, conversion rate it could be more or less. But it was around that ten thousand dollar number. You could pretty much count on that. But 
Chemnitz was, if you won, it was more in the 4,500 range. So it kind of sucked. You know, you're, do, you're putting in the same amount of effort, same travel, same risk, same all those things, and your costs were the same to get over there. But the upsides were, you know, much lower. So that, that was a bummer, but it was a part of the series of still good money. I, I uh, was a Chemnitz winner, and we'll get into that. But knowing going in, you're always your expectations are just a little bit lower because you don't have that that higher ceiling. So the plan was to race Chemnitz. That was part of my German swing, and then I reached out to Jordy, as I mentioned earlier at Barcelona, and said, "Hey, I, I really want to attend Barcelona again. I had been there a couple times, twice, I think, up to this point, and had done pretty well. I, you know, did all the right things, said all the right things with these promoters. I understood." their business plan. So I was generally easy to work with. So when I reached out to Jordy, he would always get right back to me and say, yep, let's, let's find a way to slot you in here. I kind of left out the part where I was going to be in Germany. And I basically just told him like, Hey, I'm not going to be able to uh, be at the practice. They would have an open practice on Saturday and I wasn't going to be able to participate in that. I (laughs) I was kind of not telling him why. And finally, I just had to tell him because he's like, okay, well, what's your travel plan? Like, why aren't, why wouldn't you be here? Like, it's a part of the weekend. We have a dinner on Saturday night, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, listen, I'm going to be racing Saturday night. I will be in Barcelona Sunday morning, somehow, some way to race Sunday night. And, and of course, for him, a guy that's going to write me a, a decent sized check to race, he's just going to be like, no, that's, we're not going to, we're not going to do that. That's a crazy plan. You're going to be, if you even make it here, you're going to be tired and worthless. And and that's a waste of our money. We can just go get some other American athlete that's fully committed to our event. So for me, of course, I'm pretty persistent. I had to put my negotiating hat on now because I didn't want to lose this race. I had this dream setup done. I had it negotiated. Fly into Chemnitz. Well, I fly into, uh, where did I fly into? Berlin, maybe? No, Frankfurt. I flew into Frankfurt, drove across the country. It was like three hours, which sucked. That's what we always did was make that across across the country drive basically horizontally. And uh, whatever. It is what it was. Saved a lot of money on flights. Get in there. Show up. Get uh, you, you would fly in. And, and in, for those of you who haven't flown to Europe, when you fly to Europe, you cross all these time zones. It's, you know, six hours from the East coast, eight hours from where I live now in Boise and you would land in the morning. So typically land regardless of where you flew into, I don't care if you're going to Paris or England or whatever, you're always going to land in the morning for the, in most cases. And you would be pretty tired, but whatever coffee helps. And you would immediately get your stuff, all your, your, you know, I brought almost my entire bike suspension, triple clamps, linkage, exhaust, bars, tires, chain and sprocket, all kinds of things. Lower seat, higher foot pegs. I I brought a lot of stuff with me. So I would immediately take all that stuff over to the arena. And my mechanic uh, that I, I worked with the same mechanic, Dirk, for a very long time, he was always great with me. I wish I had taken better care of him at the time because hearing now what those guys were getting paid, which was virtually nothing, I should have. I didn't really know at the time. But I would take all my stuff over and they would get the bike dialed and I would go to the hotel and and try to take a nap. You always had to be careful with how long you slept because you didn't want to, you know, be up all night the following night. So I would take usually like 30 minute, 45 minute nap 
and uh, try to get up, get a little bit active, get your blood flowing. And you're just trying to shake off the jet lag. You know, it's impossible to get rid of it completely that quickly, but the, the more you can help your body progress and facilitate working through that, the better. So have dinner, as I mentioned, we would do the thanks kind of Thanksgiving thing, which wasn't really, it was just kind of everybody getting together and then race on Friday and the race Saturday. And then I had to work out how I was going to get this Barcelona deal done because I didn't want to lose it. So I'm going back and forth. I had, I had a deal done. Germany's done, right? That's locked in. No problem. I'm going there for sure. Barcelona, I had agreed to, I think all expenses plus 5,000 was the number that was in my head. Pretty good deal. Not bad. I, I certainly was able to up that number as the years went on. But remember at this time, I hadn't really won a lot in Europe. So it was, it was a good amount of money for me. I was happy with it. And I had a lot of logistical problems to pull it off. But then Jordy hears about this Germany thing. I, I finally have to come clean with him and say, Hey, I, I will be there on Sunday. I promise you. And he's just like, Nope. We're not, we're not doing that. That's, that's crazy. There's no way you're going to miss your flight. Flight's not like, I don't even know how you're going to pull that off. And I'm like, you leave that to me. And he's just kind of, he's not really interested in that point. And and I don't blame him. But like I said, I had to be persistent. I just kept pushing, pushing, pushing. Okay. What if I do this? What if I do that? So we finally agreed to a lesser number. It was $2,000 guaranteed plus whatever purse I won because it was also that Barcelona race is a part of the French supercross championship or was at the time. So I said, okay, at least give me an opportunity to make purse at the race and make some money back. Right. I'll take the discount. I understand why it totally makes sense. Your reasoning, because yes, there's no way around it. I'm coming from Germany after racing for two nights. I'm going to get to the airport sometime in the middle of the night, fly, fly from Germany down to Barcelona get to the track, have someone build my bike, probably miss practice, all, all these things. I, I totally understand the motivation, but I really, really want to be at the event. And I believe that I can pull it off. So just trust me. She says, okay, $2,000. We'll pay for your expenses. With just give it your best shot. We, we can add your name to all the marketing. It, it's in the end, the discount helps and we'll, we'll call it good. So that was the deal. I finally, I was like, yes, I, I had this crazy balls plan. But I just added a few thousand dollars to my bottom line. So kind of jumping around here and I apologize for that. Fly to Germany, get over to Chemnitz, get everything set up. You're in, you know, this Eastern block feeling city of, of Chemnitz. I race and first night, I believe I got second. Yes. First night I got second, pretty, uh, I don't, I don't feel like that race was all that dramatic. I got a pretty good start and I think Casey Johnson got out front and was just kind of gone. Um, those of you who have been around the sport for a long time, remember Casey Johnson was 125 supercross winner, uh, should have won the 99 supercross title, but got landed on and broke his arm. He was the best rider in that series for sure, but he, he was just straight up better than me the first night. So I, you know, second, I'm, I'm happy with the second, all good. Like that's good money, good showing for me for the team. It's good for, you know, me progressing my career in Germany and being able to ask for more, you know, anytime you're on the podium, you are stepping up the ladder. It, it does nothing but good things for you across Europe. So the second night I'm, I'm still trying to sort out how I'm going to get to Munich to fly out. I had booked a flight for Munich 
uh, Sunday morning, balls early. I think my flight was at six in the morning, straight to Barcelona. The question was, how was I going to get there? Now I looked at everything. Could I rent a one-way car from Chemnitz to Munich, which I th- was the most likely scenario. But at the last minute, my longtime agent in Germany, Oscar Ziemer, who's great, great guy, took care of a lot of us American riders, got me dialed in with one of the riders fathers that I competed with. And he was a test driver for BMW and he was driving back to Munich right after the race. So as soon as the race ended, he was going to watch his kid race and then he was going to hightail it back to Munich, which was perfect for me. Now, the funniest part of this was, again, he was a test driver for BMW. That was his profession. And I guess he was fairly well known for this in Germany, but he has this brand new M5 And remember, this is 2004, so the M5 was, I don't even think it was in America yet. But anyway, that that was the next night. So Saturday night, go race. I win the race. Casey Johnson tries to take me out in the last corner. I don't blame him, right? He went in for the kill. He wanted to win. I, I, I get it. There's a big difference in money between first and second over there. He missed. I win. Awesome. My first ever German Supercross win, I believe. Yes, it would have been. And I'm really pumped. So instead of getting to celebrate, I have to immediately switch gears from spraying champagne and celebrating with the team. Like, okay, strip my bike down. I need parts off right now. And these mechanics, like you have to understand winning to them. If you're, if you're a German winning is everything. They appreciate perfection above all else. And it's just a cultural thing with Germans. You're either amazing or terrible. There's not a lot of middle ground. So when you win, especially your first win for this team and for yourself, they want to celebrate and they are not scared to celebrate. So there was this weird (laughs) conflict of like, guys, like I got to go, like I I need my bike stripped off and they're trying to like chug beers and there are, you know, music blaring. And I'm like, I I get it. I'm, I'm pumped for you guys. And I hope you guys burn Chemnitz down tonight, but I need these parts off right now. And I got to get, I got to get to this M five and get the hell out of here. Cause I got to, I got to go to the airport. And this guy, I can't remember his name. My, uh, the gentleman that I mentioned that is a test driver. He's waiting on me, right? He wants to go. So we're stripping the bike off. I'm getting all my stuff gone, you know, whatever. And it's not like I could get a shower. Like I'm sweaty and gross from racing all night, you know, and, and champagne, sprayed all over me, whatever, especially first win. I'm just getting sprayed in the face and everywhere by champagne. So finally get the bike stripped off. I get paid from the race and all these things are being rushed. I'm, I'm just hurrying as much as possible. So we load all these parts into this M5, which is just crazy, right? It's just badass concept M5. I'm loading a, a golf carrying case with all my parts in it and a dirty gear bag and stuff. And, and uh guy was super cool about it. He's not like he owned the car anyway. So it's snowy. Think about Eastern Germany in late November, snow, ice, whatever. And I think we finally got out of the track, probably 12, one, I don't know, probably 12. And it was about a three or four hour drive to Munich. And I needed to be there by five for sure. So I'm like, all right, we got time. No problem. We could take it easy. No, no. This guy, remember we're in Germany. So they have the Autobahn and you can't, the Autobahn's a little bit of a I think there's a misconception about the Autobahn. Yes. What you think about it, there are no speed limits in certain parts of the Autobahn. 
Okay. A lot of Germany, especially as the years have gone on, is urban, right? You're driving through cities, you're driving through, not, it doesn't even have to be a big city. You could just be driving through some sort of residential area. There are speed limits in those sections. Now, if you get out into the country, there are signs and it'll tell you when there are and when there are not speed limits. So I, I remember just growing up thinking, oh yeah, if you get on the Autobahn in Germany, there's no speed limit anywhere. Eh, that's not that's not true. It just depends on certain areas. You know, you may get a 20 mile stretch where there is not a speed limit and then you may go for 10 miles where there is. And then you may have a 40 mile stretch where there's not a speed limit again. And it's just in and out, in and out, in and out. And you really have to pay attention because they have speed cameras that will nail you if you are going too fast in the residential areas or urban areas. So anyway, we hop in his car and I'm expecting him to kind of play it cool. You know, it's the roads are icy. It's cold. This guy did not, he he obviously knew what he was doing driving. You know, I (laughs) kind of mentioned that, but we're doing, I don't know, a hundred, you know, whatever. I'm, I'm kind of looking over at his speedometer. It's in kilometers and, and 160 K is a hundred miles an hour. And anytime we were on the, the open speed limits part, we were doing anywhere from, I don't know, 160 K to 200 K. So, you know, over a hundred, 100, 120 miles an hour, 130 miles an hour at times. And, and I didn't feel, I didn't feel sketched out, you know, like I knew the roads were icy, but this guy was clearly a professional. I mean, and for those of you who are into formula one or whatever, you'll, you can appreciate this. And I, I would have, I kind of learned he was, his English was broken, but he's pretty smart guy. And he was kind of telling me about it. His inputs on the steering wheel were so small. And if you know anything about car racing, that's what it's all about is you're in, especially open wheel car racing in Europe. The inputs are very, very minimal and you're no, you know, no sudden movements, no quick reactions. Everything is small adjustments here and there because, you know, uh, a small adjustment on the steering wheel makes a big difference in the direction of the car. And when you're going that fast in not the best of conditions, you have to be very, very careful with the inputs that you're giving the car. So you don't break traction or do anything stupid. So I was having a great time kind of just watching him drive a little sketchy, but he kind of put me at ease. I mean, this was not his first rodeo clearly. And when the roads were really bad and he would, he would slow down. Like he's not, he's not dumb, right? He's, but in the end, he turned a three or four hour drive into <laughs> two or two hours, maybe. Like we were, we were really going fast. Uh, get to the airport, uh, thanked him. I mean, it's, you know, lifesaver for him getting me there. And I get to the airport. It's probably like, I don't know, 3 30 in the morning, something like that. My flight's at six. So I have some downtime. I was trying to take a nap in the car, but we were going so fast. It was hard to, I kind of had one eye open. So I get all my bags, get my suspension case, and I'm just posted up right in front of the gate to or the um, check-in. I don't even remember what airline I was flying down there. Probably would have been some intra-Europe airline to fly from Munich to Barcelona. But I just then posted up right at the check-in, and I just kind of like sleep on top of my gear bag for a little while. Because remember, I have to fly to Barcelona and then go right back into race day again. So hop on the plane. Thankfully, it's on time. Get to Barcelona. And I want to say I landed at, gosh, when did I get there? I don't think I got to the track until noon for some reason. that That's what rings a bell to me. And you figure, fly down there, get your bags. Someone picks you up. 
drive 45 minutes from the airport to the track. You do all these things, right? It wasn't, it's not just snap your fingers and you're there. You're going through customs and all these things because you're switching countries. So I think I got to the track at 12 and missed practice, right? They had a practice on Saturday. Then they had a practice on again on Sunday morning. And then there's this big gap. So typically if you're there for the weekend, which I'd been, you would practice Sunday morning and then you would go back to the hotel, have lunch, relax a little bit on Sunday afternoon, and then be back to the the track at like three or four because the uh, opening ceremonies was at five. So for me, I missed all that, right? I show up, I have to get my bike and all my parts to the mechanic so he can build my bike that afternoon. And I needed to kind of oversee that, make sure this, you know, I didn't know this mechanic at all. I need to make sure that he's doing the right things and everything is dialed and give him input as to where I want to set my bars. And we have to set sag on my suspension and do all these things. There's a lot with, with a brand new mechanic, there's a lot of detail to go through and, oh yeah, I didn't, I haven't even seen the track yet. Right. I didn't ride practice. I don't even know what it looks like. So I'm going out there and walking the track. I must, I must have walked the track five times. Because for me, my first lap of the track is going to be in the race, the first heat race, which is, this is why the promoter's like, what are you thinking? Like, no, we don't want you to do this. This is crazy. But me being uh, persistent and stubborn and also wanting to make some money, talked myself and everyone else into this. So I keep walking the track and I finally have it just memorized inside and out. Get the bike dialed. I went and took a nap on a piece of cardboard in, in the pits, just laid out, you know, just on it, curled up in a ball trying to sleep because I didn't really sleep the night before. And I'm coming off of a race win, you know, and the adrenaline's pumping. So it was really hard to sleep in that car ride down there. And just like trying to muster up every bit of energy and, um, resolve and motivation that I could find because I I really wanted to prove that this was a good decision. I didn't want later that night going into the promoter to get paid and the promoter being like, yeah, well, that was stupid. Why'd you talk me into this? It was a waste of money. You know, don't ever do that again. I wanted him to be like, man, you, you came through. So I'm trying to sleep, trying to learn the track, trying to get my bike dialed, trying to do all these things. Anyway, roll into five o'clock and opening ceremonies are going on. And I, I get a list of, okay, how is this how does the qualifying work? Because again, I need to get into the main event. That's step one, but I haven't even ridden the track. So how am I going to qualify out of the heat race? My first lap ever. I haven't jumped anything. I don't know the rhythms. I, you know, like hopefully my bike is dialed. Like I'm not even going to get to work my bike in. I'm just going to have to wing it. So I get, I get the qualifying and it's, it was basically top nine in the first heat qualify to what they would call like a semifinal or a half final. And then out of that, you had to qualify again to get to the main event. So this was, this was beneficial for me because that first qualifying race would be pretty easy, you know, for guys at my level and certainly above my level, we were much better than, you know, like say like five, six, seven, eight, nine in that qualifying race. So I I had to scheme something up. And if those that know me well, know that you can typically see the wheels turning in my head at times. But I knew, okay, if I can figure the track out in the first few laps, this first qualifying race was like 10 or 12 laps or whatever. First couple laps, follow the guys in front of me, do what they do. Jump the jumps, use their knowledge of the track to sort the 
the rhythms out, then slowly through laps, you know, three, four, five, six, get the bigger rhythms dialed in. So you start to lower your lap times. And then the last like four laps or whatever there was, you've got to be going as fast as possible or, or close to it. Maybe not all the way up yet, but at least somewhat close to race pace. So you can start passing guys and making moves. You need to be blitzing the whoops. You need to be jumping the triples. You need to be hitting the rhythm sections the way that they were built to be jumped. Like, you know, triples and on-offs and all, all the big stuff, right? That maybe the guys in the back aren't skilled enough to do. So part of that plan was to let everybody go on the start. You certainly don't want to get a good start and have never jumped anything. That's a recipe to hurt yourself. So I let everybody go on the start and I am following the guys, the the lesser guys, and I'm just jumping, jumping the jumps, kind of timing everything up, just the smaller rhythms. Didn't jump the triple yet, whatever. First lap, second lap, you know, I have everything basic. And then the third lap, I start jumping bigger stuff, right? And you're starting to catch guys and you can kind of feel the plan coming together. Fourth lap and fifth lap, I go for the bigger rhythms, get them right. And then I see like the halfway sign come out for the qualifier. I'm like, okay, it's time to go. Ready or not, I got to go. So I, I start trying to put in race level laps, like my my race pace, as close as I could anyway. I certainly wasn't all the way there yet. But I, I start passing guys, passing guys, and I'm looking up. Over the finish line, you could look up and see they had a huge like jumbotron that had the positions in it. And I would look up every lap and see what place I was in. And I knew I had to get to ninth. I think it was ninth anyway. So I'm looking up and you know, I'm in 15th and I'm in 12th and I'm like, okay, I got to just keep going, keep going. I knew who was in the race and I knew I was much better than a lot of these guys. So I'm like, just, just trust how this is going to go. Don't freak out. So passing, passing, passing. I look up and there's like three laps to go and I'm going pretty fast by this point. And I'm in like eighth. I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm dialed. So I kind of transitioned because I knew the guys behind me were not going to pass me back. I, they were, you know, a lot of times they would be Spanish riders or French riders and they were just, uh, more back of the pack guys that were not going to pass me back. So I could kind of relax a little bit, make sure I didn't crash and try to figure the track out. So I kind of switched modes and got the rhythms to where I wanted them. I knew what the, I had talked to the American riders that afternoon. Nick way was there. A few guys were there you know, what, what's the line you guys have been practicing here for two days. Like what's the rhythm. Do I need to go three, two, two, three, whatever. And, and those guys all kind of clued me in as to what the line was, especially Nick, Nick and I were super close back then. So I knew what I needed to be doing. So those last few laps, I just, okay, I got to get the track figured out to way the way those guys are going to ride it. And then, so yeah, great. I qualified, you know, one check mark done. That, that was a huge sigh of relief because again, you got to think about it. I had never ridden the track have you guys ever done that before? Never practice on a track and go immediately into a gate drop without one lap of practice. Like that's pretty uh, unnerving, especially a supercross track. So move into the half final. I have a pretty good feel for the track now. And I think, you know, obviously it gets tougher to qualify out of this, but where I was in my racing career and then who was going to be in the, in the, the main event, I, I was certainly good enough to be in that without question. I just needed to continue to progress, get better on the track, bring my lap times down. Now I could at least go for the start and put myself in a, an easier position because I knew the track. So I don't remember the half final specifically. I knew I qualified, wasn't anything overwhelmingly great, but I, I did get to get with the better guys, 
the Villamans and the Nick Ways and the Mike Browns and all those guys, Edgar Tornteras and all the guys from Europe that raced back then, start to get their pace. And that was kind of the next step is I needed to get from a very careful, not going to crash, but good enough to progress and qualify to, okay, now I got to get serious and get on the pace of, if I want to do well, these guys. That was the next step. I kind of figured out their pace in the half final, studied the track more. So then we go to the main event and I, I'm not going to lie. I was pretty tired by this point. Um, hadn't really slept. This is now Sunday night. I've raced twice again. So I was having a hard time getting my energy level up and I'm like, okay, just, I got, I have to get the start and I'm, I'm on the outside because I qualified poorly in the first one that put me in a bad gate pick for the half final. Didn't get the best of starts and I'm still not really competitive yet. Didn't qualify all that well out of the half final. So I'm on the, I'm on the outside for the, the gate pick in the main event. So somehow I pulled a whole shot in the main event. And I think this race is, I saw it on YouTube the other day. If you ever want to look it up, 2004 Barcelona, I, I believe it's on there. I pulled a whole shot from the very outside and, uh, yeah, I'm like, Oh boy, here we go. I'm on, I'm on a track that I'm still learning a little bit. I'm tired. Uh, but I'm going for it. I I'm just full send mode. I lead for a couple laps and guys are passing me. You know, they were for one, they were better than me. And then two, I'm nowhere near full strength. So I remember Nick way passed me. Damon Huffman was there. Um, I don't remember all the guys, but solid guys were passing me, but, uh, ended up fifth in the main event. So pretty happy about that. A podium would have been great, but I don't know if I could have gotten on the podium that night, even at full strength, or, you know, if I just only gone to that race, but I was pretty happy with the fifth, you know, more than anything, I was able to go into the promoter's office after the race. And you'd always kind of get ushered in by yourself with security because these guys would pay you in cash. And, you know, with that much cash in a room, yeah, you had armed security and all that stuff to make sure nobody was going to try to, you know, pull off a heist, go in there. And, and, you know, Jordy was in there and you had to sign all these papers and whatever. He's like, well, you did it. You were right. And that was, to me, that was the most rewarding of all of it for, you know, the money's awesome and that's why you're there. But for him to be like, yeah, you didn't let me down. You talked me into this harebrained plan of how you're going to fly from Germany to Spain and race with no practice and all this stuff. But you did it. You pulled the whole shot. You were winning. You held on for fifth. Like, yeah, yeah, I, I can appreciate the effort you put in. So that was the most rewarding of all of it. So I get paid, you know, finally get to go to the hotel. I eat with, you know, all the American guys. We grab dinner at, at the hotel after. And I am beyond exhausted. The toughest part of all of this is now I have to fly back to Germany on Monday and I had scheduled my flight home from Germany to America on Tuesday. So I race Germany, drive all night, fly to Spain Sunday, race Sunday night, get back on a plane, fly to Germany Monday, and finally get to my hotel and just like exhale in Germany. I'm just like, okay, I don't have anywhere to go, anywhere, nothing to do. I'm just sitting here. I'm not doing anything. So rested uh, that evening in Germany and then slept and then I flew back home Tuesday. So pretty long story there, but think about all the things that went on. You fly Wednesday, arrive Thursday, race Friday, race Saturday, win, fly to Spain Monday morning or Sunday morning, race Sunday night, fly back to Germany Monday, fly back to America on Tuesday. Uh, I, looking back on it, 
really ill-advised. <laughs> like you're like, what are you doing? Like, how do how do you concoct a plan like this and think you can possibly pull it off? Like the audacity of me now thinking that that was any sort of good idea, that everything had to go perfectly right to pull it off. It's pretty crazy, but when you're young, you don't really, you know, I didn't care. I was like, I can do this. I I can pull this off. I can make it happen. And now sitting here, (laughs) you know, 15 years, 16 years later, you're like, what are you doing? How did you come up with that? Like, well, you know, but it was just, I think it was born out of motivation to take advantage of every opportunity. And I didn't want to let anything slip. And it was like, okay, well, so what? These races are on the same weekend. I can make it work. So if you enjoyed that story, I do want to thank the sponsor of this podcast. I probably should have mentioned them a little bit sooner, but that's okay. Pirelli tires. If you need new tires, if you're in a part of the country where you get to ride this time of year, because those of us in Boise do not, it's cold, snowing, but sitting here in Vegas, pretty nice out. So if you wanted to go out to Western Raceway and battle it out with Steve Mathis, go get yourself a set of Pirelli tires. Queen bikes just go faster with the new Pro Glow line of Power Sports Cleaning Solutions. They will get your bike dialed in. Now, if you're going to wash your bike, which all of us are, why wouldn't you buy something that's specifically built to remove dirt, road grime, all those things off of your Power Sports bike, UTV, ATV, whatever it is. So go check out Pro Glow line of Power Sports Wash at goproglow.com. Blends all oils. Check them out long storied brand in all sorts of power sports. They're making a big push in moto sponsor guys like Michael Lessi. They're sponsoring events, which a lot of those got canceled, unfortunately this summer, but you'll see blends all growing more and more. And when you think about that name and how long it's been around, it's been around for a reason. So check out blends all you go to at blends all on their Instagram Worksconnection.com, pro launch start device. We are about a month away, uh, a little bit less than a month away from getting back to Supercross action. You know, who's going to be pulling hole shots. Guys that use the Works Connection Pro Launch Start Device, check them out at worksconnection.com. And you can use the promo code JT21 at checkout to save yourself some money. Again, JT21. Go to Premier Vapor Blasting. Check out their Instagram. I saw they had a new post this week. They do, obviously, vapor blasting, but it's a very safe method to restore some of your older bike parts. You can use them to clean, like if you have an a new set of, or an older set of boots that you want to make look new again, send them off to premier vapor blasting. It's, it's a very delicate way of making your parts and, and gear to look brand new again. You go to their Instagram again, at premier vapor blasting and learn more. If you mention the industry seating podcast, you will get a 25% discount. So pretty good deal there all the way around Six twelve suspension. If you have any kind of motorcycle, ATV, UTV, Anything with two wheels and an engine or four wheels with an engine, you should send your suspension off to 612 Suspension. They are a part of the Racetech family. I have known the owners of this company and the first generation of this family for a very long time. They used to do my suspension and I could not recommend their services more. Whether you need a revalve or just to get your oil changed, please reach out to 612 Suspension. You go to at 612suspension.com or at 612suspension on Instagram. Fast Foundry. I'm going to do an interview with Robert Carrico of Fast Foundry soon. And really my goal is to help explain because being a tech solutions company, it doesn't always ring a bell with Moto, right? But there are so many applications to whatever business you may be in. They worked with 
brand new startups. They've worked with small business. They've worked with Fortune 500 companies like Mountain Dew, Intel, uh, all kinds of bigger brands that we've all, you know, household name type companies. So the applications are very broad, but what I'm hoping is Robert can speak to you specifically on how he can make your company more efficient, whether it's automation or whether it's just getting off the ground. I think he will be able to explain that much better than I ever could. If you want to reach out to Robert and learn more, 208-991-3320. And you can get, even if it's just getting your your company uh, mobile optimized, which is a big step for a lot of people, Fast Foundry is the answer for you. Risk Racing, Easy Utility Jugs, Lock and Load Pro. Also check out the Ripper is that roll-off system where you don't even have to pull out. You don't even have to reach up and pull the cord. It's just uh, it's a light sensor that's on your bars that will automatically pull the screen across. Pretty cool, right? So I'm going to have uh, the team from Risk Racing on to a podcast soon uh, just to explain a little bit more. And they have a lot of cool items that you may miss. If you don't go on their, their website, riskracing.com or at their Instagram and learn more about them, you may just be missing an opportunity. And that's kind of where, and they haven't told me this, this is my own perception. But when I look at Risk Racing's lineup, it's almost like they drew a list of problems. Okay, what makes my racing day worse? Or what would I, if I had X, this would make my day better. And they went out and found solutions for that, right? How do I, how can I keep my suspension from getting sacked out by pulling tie downs? You know, like all these things, how can I prevent from getting blisters? They have items for that, uh, palm protectors. They have all these cool items that may be out of your direct line of sight, but we'll have them on and they they can explain a little bit more and just tell you all the cool things that you may not even know that they offer, right? That That's the biggest thing with this podcast is trying to shine light on new items that you don't even know they exist. But if they were in your life, your racing day would be a little bit better. Grandstone Boots, go to at Grandstone on Instagram, go to grandstoneboot.com. I've been involved with the Grandstone team for going on five years now. And many of you like to go out on the weekends, go on a date, go to a nice dinner. You need to be wearing Grandstone Boots. Why would you buy your evening wear or business wear? You know, I have friends that are very high up in the financial world, right? They have to wear a suit every day to work. They wear Grandstone boots. You should too. Even if for me, I don't wear boots to work, but if I go out on Friday night, Saturday night, like last night here in Vegas, going to dinner and watching football, whatever, I had Grandstone boots on. So go check those guys out. Great moto people and make a great product. They also have belts, loafers, all kinds of stuff, wallets, all kinds of different things there as well. And then of course, fly racing, go to flyracing.com, go to at fly racing USA on Instagram to learn more about everything. It's the formula helmet, which we love to talk about. And also want to mention too, I will be having a fly racing product podcast that will be launching. I've already recorded the first episode that'll be coming out too. And uh, I will be talking more about that in the coming weeks. Thanks, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the story. I was kind of all over the place. I apologize for that. But every time I start talking about things, I remember more and more as the story goes. So probably could have made an outline with notes in it, but I just wanted to kind of do it off the cuff and make it as, make it as genuine as and authentic as possible. Thank you to everybody for listening. Thank you to all the sponsors. Looking forward to a very, very successful 2021. Let's put this 2020 year behind us and get back to racing. Thanks again. See you.